Book three, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three by Francois René de Chateaubriand, translated by Alexander Texera de Matos. Book three, part one. God had pronounced one of those words by which the silence of eternity is at rare intervals interrupted. Then, in the midst of the present generation, rose the hammer that struck the hour which Paris had only once heard sound. On the 25th of December, 496, Rheim announced the baptism of Clovis, and the gates of Lutetia opened to the Franks. On the 30th of March, 1814, after the baptism of blood of Louis XVI, the old hammer, which had so long remained motionless, rose once more in the belfry of the ancient monarchy. A second stroke resounded. The Tartars penetrated into Paris. In the interval of thirteen hundred and eighteen years, the foreigner had insulted the walls of the capital of our empire without ever being able to enter it, except when he glided in, summoned by our own divisions. The Normans besieged the city of the Parisie. The Parisie gave flight to the hawks, which they carried on their wrists. Odo, child of Paris and future king, Rex Futurus, Abon says, drove back the pirates of the north. The Parisians let fly their eagles in 1814. The Allies entered the Louvre. Bonaparte had waged an unjust war against Alexander, his admirer, who had begged on his knees for peace. Bonaparte had ordered the carnage of the Moscova. He had forced the Russians themselves to burn Moscow. Bonaparte had plundered Berlin, humiliated its king, insulted its queen. What reprisals were we then to expect? You shall see. I had wandered in the Floridas round unknown monuments, devastated of old by conquerors of whom no trace remains, and I was safe for the sight of the Caucasian hordes encamped in the courtyard of the Louvre. In those events of history which, according to Montaigne, are but weak testimonies of our worth and capacity, my tongue cleaves to my palate, adhere at lingua mea, falcibus meis. The Allied army entered Paris on the 31st of March, 1814, at midday, ten days only after the anniversary of the death of the Duc d'Enghien, 21st March, 1804. Was it worth Bonaparte's while to commit an action of such long remembrance for a reign which was to last so short a time? The Emperor of Russia and the King of Prussia rode at the head of their troops. I saw them defile along the boulevards, feeling stupefied and dumbfounded within myself, as though my name as a Frenchman had been torn from me to substitute for it the name by which I was thenceforth to be known in the mines of Siberia. I felt at the same time my exasperation increase against the man whose glory had reduced us to that disgrace. Nevertheless, this first invasion of the Allies has remained unparalleled in the annals of the world. Order, peace, and moderation reigned on every hand. The shops were reopened. Russian guardsmen, six feet tall, were piloted through the streets by little French rogues who made fun of them, as of jumping-jacks and carnival maskers. The conquered might be taken for the conquerors. The latter, trembling at their successes, looked as though they were excusing themselves. The National Guard alone garrisoned the interior of Paris, with the exception of the houses in which the foreign kings and princes were lodged. On the 31st of March, 1814, countless armies were occupying France. A few months later, all those troops passed back across our frontiers, without firing a musket shot, without shedding a drop of blood, after the return of the Bourbons. Old France found herself enlarged on some of her frontiers. The ships and stores of Antwerp were divided with her. Three hundred thousand prisoners, scattered over the countries where victory or defeat had left them, 
were restored to her. After five and twenty years of fighting, the clash of arms ceased from one end of Europe to the other. Alexander departed, leaving us the masterpieces which we had conquered, and the liberty lodged in the charter, a liberty which we owed as much to his enlightenment as to his influence. The head of two supreme authorities, twice an autocrat by the sword and by religion, he alone, of all the sovereigns of Europe, had understood that, at the age of civilization which France had attained, she could be governed only by virtue of a free constitution. In our very natural hostility to the foreigners, we have confused the invasion of 1814 and that of 1815, which were in no sense alike. Alexander looked upon himself merely as an instrument of providence, and took no credit to himself. When Madame de Steel complimented him upon the happiness which his subjects, lacking a constitution, enjoyed of being governed by him, he made his well-known reply, I am only a fortunate accident. A young man in the streets of Paris expressed to him his admiration at the affability with which he received the least of the citizens. He replied, For what else are sovereigns made? He refused to inhabit the Tuileries, remembering that Bonaparte had taken his ease in the palaces of Vienna, Berlin, and Moscow. Looking at the statue of Napoleon on the column in the Place Vendôme, he said, If I were so high up, I should be afraid of becoming giddy. As he was going over the palace of the Tuileries, they showed him the Salon de la Paix. Of what use, he asked, laughing, was this room to Bonaparte. On the day of Louis XVIII's entry into Paris, Alexander hid himself behind a window, wearing no mark of distinction, to watch the procession as it passed. Alexander sometimes had elegantly affectionate manners. Visiting a madhouse, he asked a woman if there were many women mad through love. Not at present, replied she, but it is to be feared that the number has increased, since the moment of your majesty's entry into paris one of napoleon's great dignitaries said to the czar your arrival has long been expected and wished for sire i should have come sooner he replied you must blame only french valour for my delay it is certain that when crossing the rhine he had regretted that he was not able to retire in peace to the midst of his family at the hotel des invalides he found the maimed soldiers who had defeated him at austerlitz they were silent and gloomy one heard nothing save the noise of their wooden legs in their deserted yard and their denuded church. Alexander was touched by this noise of brave men. He ordered that twelve Russian guns should be given back to them. A proposal was made to him to change the name of the Pont d'Austerlitz. No, he said, it is enough for me to have crossed the bridge with my army. Alexander had something calm and sad about him. He went about Paris on horseback or on foot, without a suite and without affectation. He appeared astonished at his triumph. His almost melting gaze wandered over a population whom he seemed to regard as superior to himself. One would have said that he thought himself a barbarian among us, even as a Roman felt shamefaced in Athens. Perhaps also he reflected that these same Frenchmen had appeared in his fired capital, that his soldiers in their turn were masters of Paris, in which he might have been able to find again some of those now extinguished torches by which Moscow was freed and consumed. This destiny, these changing fortunes, this common misery of peoples and of kings, were bound to make a profound impression upon a mind so religious as his. What was the victor of the Borodino doing? So soon as he had heard of Alexander's resolution, he had sent orders to Major Maillard de Lescaut of the artillery to blow up the Grenelle powder magazine. Rostopchin had set fire to Moscow, but he had first sent away the inhabitants. From Fontainebleau, to which he had returned, Napoleon marched to Villejuif, Thence he threw a glance over Paris. Foreign soldiers were guarding its gates. The conqueror remembered the days in which his grenadiers kept watch on the ramparts of Berlin, Moscow, and Vienna. 
Events destroy other events. How poor a thing today appears to us the grief of Henry the Fourth, learning of the death of Gabriel at Villejuif and returning to Fontainebleau. Bonaparte also returned to that solitude. He was awaited there only by the memory of his august prisoner. The captive of peace had gone from the palace in order to leave it free for the captive of war. So swiftly does misfortune fill up its places. The regency had retired to Blois. Bonaparte had given orders for the Empress and the King of Rome to leave Paris, saying that he would rather see them at the bottom of the Seine than led back in triumph to Vienna. But at the same time he had enjoined Joseph to remain in the capital. His brother's retreat made him furious, and he accused the ex-King of Spain of ruining all. The ministers, the members of the regency, Napoleon's brothers, his wife and his son, arrived in disorder at Blois, swept away in the downfall. Military wagons, baggage vans, carriages, everything was there. The king's own coaches were there, and were dragged through the mud of the boast to Chambord, the only morsel of France left to the heir of Louis XIV. Some of the ministers did not stop here, but proceeded as far as Brittany to hide themselves, while Cambaceres lolled in a sedan chair in the steep streets of Blois. Various rumours were current, there was talk of two camps, and of a general requisition. During several days they were ignorant of what was happening in Paris. The uncertainty did not cease, until the arrival of a wagoner, whose pass was signed Sacken. Soon the Russian general, Shuvalov, alighted at the Auberge de la Galère. He was suddenly besieged by the grandees, and entreated to obtain a visa for their stampede. However, before leaving Blois, all drew upon the funds of the regency for their travelling expenses and their arrears of salary. They held their passports in one hand and their money in the other, taking care at the same time to send in their adhesion to the provisional government, for they did not lose their heads. Madame Mère and her brother, Cardinal Fesch, left for Rome. Prince Esterhazy came on behalf of Francis II to fetch Marie-Louise and her son. Joseph and Jerome withdrew to Switzerland, after vainly trying to compel the Empress to attach herself to their fate. Marie-Louise hastened to join her father, indifferently attached to Bonaparte, she found means to console herself, and rejoiced at being delivered from the double tyranny of a husband and a master. When in the following year Bonaparte revisited that confusion of flight on the Bourbons, the latter, but lately rescued from their long tribulations, had not enjoyed fourteen years of unequal prosperity in which to accustom themselves to the comforts of the throne. However, Napoleon was not yet dethroned. More than forty thousand of the best soldiers in the world were around him. He was able to retire behind the Loire, the French armies which had arrived from Spain were growling in the south. The military population might bubble over and distribute its lava. Even among the foreign leaders there was still a question of Napoleon or his son reigning over France. For two days Alexander hesitated. Monsieur de Talleyrand, as I have said, secretly leant towards the policy which tended to crown the King of Rome, for he dreaded the Bourbons. If he did not then accept entirely the plan of the regency of Marie-Louise, it was because, since Napoleon had not perished, he, the Prince de Benevent, feared that he would not be able to retain the mastery during a minority threatened by the existence of a restless, erratic, enterprising man still in the vigour of his age. It was in those critical days that I threw down my pamphlet, De Bonaparte et des Bourbons, to turn the scale, which result is well known. I flung myself headlong into the fray to serve as a shield to liberty reviving against tyranny still subsisting, with its strength increased threefold by despair. I spoke in the name of the legitimacy, in order to add to my words the authority of positive affairs. I taught France what the old royal family was. I told her how many members of that family existed, what their names were and their character. It was as though I had drawn up a list of the children of the Emperor of China. 
to so great an extent had the republic and the empire encroached upon the present and relegated the bourbons to the past louis the eighteenth declared as i have already often mentioned that my pamphlet was of greater profit to him than an army of one hundred thousand men he might have added that it was a certificate of existence to him i assisted in giving him the crown a second time by the fortunate issue of the spanish war from the commencement of my political career i became popular with the crowd but from that time also i failed to make my way with powerful men all who had been slaves under bonaparte abhorred me on the other side i was an object of suspicion to all who wished to place france in a state of vassalage at the first moment among the sovereigns i had none on my side except bonaparte himself he looked through my pamphlet at fontainebleau the duc de bassano had brought it to him he discussed it impartially saying this is true that is not true i have nothing to reproach chateaubriand with he resisted me when i was in power but those scoundrels so-and-so and he named them my admiration for bonaparte was always great and sincere even at the time when i was attacking napoleon with the greatest eagerness posterity is not so fair in its judgments as has been held there are passions infatuations errors of distance even as there are passions and errors of proximity when posterity admires without reserve it is scandalized that the contemporaries of the man admired should not have had the same idea of that man as itself this can be explained however the things which offended one in that person are past his infirmities have died with him all that remains of him is his imperishable life but the evil which he caused is none the less real evil in itself and in its essence and especially for those who endured it it is the style of the day to magnify bonaparte's victories the sufferers have disappeared we no longer hear the imprecations the cries of pain and distress of the victims we no longer see france exhausted with only women to till her soil we no longer see parents arrested as a pledge for their sons the inhabitants of the villages made jointly and severally responsible for the penalties applicable to a rebellious recruit we no longer see those conscription placards posted at the street corners the passers-by gathered before those enormous lists of dead seeking in consternation the names of their children their brothers their friends their neighbours we forget that the whole population bewail the triumphs we forget that the slightest allusion against bonaparte on the stage which had escaped the censors was hailed with rapture we forget that the people the court the generals the ministers napoleon's relations were weary of his oppressions and his conquests weary of that game always being won and always being played of that existence brought into question each morning anew thanks to the impossibility of repose the reality of our sufferings is demonstrated by the catastrophe itself if france had been infatuated with bonaparte would she twice have abandoned him abruptly completely without making one last effort to keep him if france owed all to bonaparte glory liberty order prosperity industry commerce manufactures monuments literature fine arts if before his time the nation had done nothing itself if the republic destitute of genius and courage had neither defended nor enlarged the territory then france must have been very ungrateful very cowardly to allow napoleon to fall into the hands of his enemies or at least not to protest against the captivity of so great a benefactor this reproach which might justly be made against us is not made against us however and why 
because it is evident that at the moment of his fall france did not desire to defend napoleon in our bitter mortification we beheld in him only the author and the contemner of our wretchedness the allies did not defeat us we ourselves choosing between two scourges renounced shedding our blood which had ceased to flow for our liberties the republic had been very cruel doubtless but every one hoped that it would pass that sooner or later we should recover our rights while retaining the preservatory conquests which it had given us on the alps and the rhine all the victories which it gained were won in our name with the republic there was no question save of france it was always france that had triumphed that had conquered it was our soldiers who had done all and for whom triumphal of funeral feasts were organized the generals and some were very great obtained an honourable but modest place in the public memory such were marceau moreau hoche joubert the two last seemed destined to replace bonaparte who in the dawn of his glory suddenly crossed the path of general hoche and by his jealousy rendered illustrious that warlike pacificator who died unexpectedly after his triumphs of altkirchen neuwied and kleinister under the empire we disappeared we were no longer mentioned everything belonged to bonaparte i have ordered i have conquered i have spoken my eagles my crown my family my subjects what happened however in those two positions at the same time similar and opposite we did not abandon the republic in its reverses it killed us but it honoured us we had not the disgrace of being the property of a man thanks to our efforts it was never invaded the russians defeated beyond the mountains met with their end at zurich as for bonaparte he despite his enormous acquisitions succumbed not because he was conquered but because france would have no more of him how great a lesson may it ever make us remember that there is cause of death in all that offends the dignity of man independent minds of every shade and opinion were employing uniform language at the time of the publication of my pamphlet lafayette camille jordan ducis le mercier Langinet, madame de steele chenier benjamin constant lebrun thought and wrote as i did god in his patient eternity brings justice sooner or later at moments when heaven seems to slumber it is always a fine thing that the disapproval of an honest man should keep watch and remain as a curb upon the absolute power france will not disown the noble souls which protested against her servitude when all lay prostrate when there were so many advantages in so lying so many favours to receive in return for flattery so many persecutions to undergo in return for sincerity honour then to the lafayettes the de Steels, the benjamin constants the camille jordans the duces the le mercier the Langinet, the cheniers who standing erect amidst the grovelling crowd of peoples and of kings dared to despise victory and protest against tyranny on the second of april the senators to whom we owe one clause only of the charter of eighteen fourteen the contemptible clause preserving their pensions decreed the deposition of bonaparte if this decree which emancipated france but brought infamy upon those who issued it offers an affront to the human race at the same time it teaches posterity the price of grandeurs and fortune when these have disdained to take their stand upon basis of morality justice and liberty decree of the conservative senate the conservative senate taking into consideration that in a constitutional monarchy the monarch exists only by virtue of the constitution or the social compact that napoleon bonaparte for some time maintaining a firm and prudent government had given the nation cause to reckon in the future upon acts of wisdom and justice 
but that subsequently he destroyed the compact which united him to the French people, notably by levying imports and establishing taxes, otherwise than by virtue of the law, against the express tenor of the oath which he took on his accession to the throne, in conformity with clause 53 of the Constitutions of the 28th, Florial Year 12, that he was guilty of this attempt upon the rights of the people, at the very time when he had without necessity adjourned the legislative body, and caused a report made by that body, whose title and whose relation to the national representation he contested, to be suppressed as criminal, that he undertook a series of wars in violation of clause 50 of the Act settling the constitution of the year 8, which lays down that any declaration of war shall be proposed, discussed, decreed, and promulgated like the laws, that he has unconstitutionally issued several decrees bearing the penalty of death, namely the two decrees of the 5th of March last, tending to cause a war to be considered as national, which was undertaken only in the interest of his own unmeasured ambition, that he has violated the laws of the Constitution by his decrees concerning the state prisons, that he has annihilated the responsibility of the ministers, put down all the powers, and destroyed the independence of the courts of jurisdiction, taking into consideration that the liberty of the press, established and perpetuated as one of the rights of the nation, has been constantly subjected to the arbitrary censorship of his police, and that, at the same time, he has always made use of the press to fill France and Europe with fabricated facts, with false maxims, with doctrines favourable to despotism, and with outrages against foreign governments, that acts and reports passed by the Senate have undergone alterations when made public, taking into consideration that, instead of reigning with a sole view to the interest, the happiness and the glory of the French people, according to the terms of his oath, Napoleon has completed the misfortunes of the country by his refusal to treat on conditions which the national interest obliged him to accept and which did not compromise the honour of France, by his abuse of all the means entrusted to him in men and money, by his abandonment of the wounded without aid, medical requisites or supplies, by various measures which resulted in the ruin of the towns, the depopulation of the rural districts, famine and infectious disease, taking into consideration that, Owing to all these causes, the imperial government established by the Senatus Consultum of the 28th Florial Year 12, or 18th May 1804, has ceased to exist, and that the manifest desires of all Frenchmen call into being an order of things of which the first result would be the restoration of general peace, and which would also mark the epoch of a solemn reconciliation between all the states of the great family of Europe. The Senate declares and decrees as follows. Napoleon deposed from the throne, hereditary right abolished in his family, the French people and the army released from the oath of fidelity to him. The Roman Senate was less harsh when it declared Nero a public enemy. History is but a repetition of the same facts, applied to varying men and times. Can one picture to oneself the emperor reading this official document at Fontainebleau? One must he have thought of what he had done, and of the men whom he had summoned to be his accomplices in his oppression of our liberties. When I published my pamphlet De Bonaparte et des Bourbons, could I have expected to see it amplified and converted into a decree of deposition by the Senate? What prevented those legislators, in the days of prosperity, from discovering the evils of which they reproached Bonaparte with being the author, from perceiving that the Constitution had been violated? What zeal suddenly seized these mutes for the liberty of the press? How did they, who had overwhelmed Napoleon with adulation upon his return from each of his wars, now come to find that he had undertaken those wars only in the interest of his own unmeasured ambition? How did they, who had flung him so many conscripts to devour, suddenly melt at the thought of the wounded soldiers, abandoned without aid, medical requisites, or supplies? There are times at which contempt should be but frugally dispensed, because of the large number of those in need of it. 
I pity them for this moment, because they will need it again, during and after the hundred days. When I asked what Napoleon at Fontainebleau thought of the acts of the Senate, his answer was made, an order of the day of 5th April 1814, not published officially, but printed in different newspapers outside the capital, thanked the army for its fidelity, adding, The Senate has allowed itself to dispose of the government of France. It has forgotten that it owes to the Emperor the power which it is now abusing, that it was he who saved one part of its members from the storms of the revolution, drew the other from obscurity, and protected it against the hatred of the nation. The Senate relies upon the clauses of the Constitution to overthrow it. It is not ashamed to utter reproaches against the Emperor, without remarking that, in its capacity as the first body of the State, it took part in all the events. The Senate is not ashamed to speak of the libels published against the foreign governments. It forgets that these were drawn up in its midst. So long as fortune remained faithful to their sovereign, these men remained faithful, and no complaint was heard of the abuses of power. If the Emperor had despised men, as he has been reproached with doing, then the world would recognise to-day that he has had reasons which justified his contempt. This was a homage rendered by Bonaparte himself to the liberty of the press. He must have believed that there was some good in it, since it offered him a last shelter and a last aid. And I, who am struggling with time, I, who am striving to make it give an account of what it has seen, I, who am writing this so long after the events that are past, under the reign of Philip, the counterfeit heir of so great an inheritance, what am I in the hands of that time, that great devourer of the centuries which I thought fixed, of that time which makes me whirl with itself through space? Alexander had taken up his residence at Monsieur de Talleyrand's. I was not present at the cabals. You can read about them in the narratives of the Abbé de Prat, and of the various intriguers who handled in their dirty and paltry paws the fate of one of the greatest men in history and the destiny of the world. I counted for nothing in politics outside the masses. There was no plotting understrapper but enjoyed far more right and favour in the antechambers than I. A coming figure in the possible restoration, I waited beneath the windows in the street. Through the machinations of the house in the Rue Saint-Florentin, the Conservative Senate appointed a provisional government composed of General Bernonville, Senator Jocourt, the Duc de Dalberg, the Abbé de Montesquieu, and Dupont de Nemours. The Prince de Benevent helped himself to the presidency. On meeting this name for the first time, I ought to speak of the personage who took a remarkable part in the affairs of that time, but I reserve his portrait for the end of my memoirs. The intrigue which kept Monsieur de Talleyrand in Paris, at the time of the entry of the Allies, was the cause of his successes at the commencement of the Restoration. The Emperor of Russia knew him from having seen him at Tilsit. In the absence of the French authorities, Alexander took up his quarters in the Hôtel de l'Infantare, which the owner hastened to offer him. From that time forth, Monsieur de Talleyrand passed for the arbiter of the world. His apartments became the centre of the negotiations. Composing the provisional government to his own liking, he there placed the partners of his rubber. The Abbé de Montesquieu figured in it only as an advertisement of the legitimacy. To the Bishop of Autun's sterility were confided the first labours of the Restoration. He infected that restoration with barrenness, and communicated to it a germ of blight and death. The first acts of the provisional government, placed under the dictatorship of its chairman, were proclamations addressed to the soldiers and to the people. Soldiers, they said to the former, France has shattered the yoke under which she and you had been groaning for so many years. See all that you have suffered at the hands of tyranny. 
Soldiers, the time has come to put an end to the ills of the country. You are her noblest children. You cannot belong to him who has ravaged her, who tried to make your name hated by all the nations, who might perhaps have compromised your glory, were it possible for a man who is not even a Frenchman, ever to impair the honour of our arms and the generosity of our soldiers. And so, in the eyes of his most servile slaves, he who had won so many victories was no longer even a Frenchman. When, in the days of the League, Dubourg surrendered the Bastille to Henry the Fourth, he refused to doff the black scarf and to take the money which was offered him for the surrender of the stronghold. Urged to recognise the king, he replied that he was no doubt a very good prince, but that he had pledged his faith to Monsieur de Mayenne, that, moreover, Brissac was a traitor, and that, to prove it to him, he would fight him between four pikes in the king's presence, and would eat the heart out of his body. A difference of times and men. On the 4th of April appeared a new address of the provisional government to the people of France. It said, On emerging from your civil discords, you chose as your leader a man who appeared upon the world's stage endowed with the characteristics of greatness. On the ruins of anarchy, he founded only despotism. He ought at least out of gratitude to have become a Frenchman like yourselves. He has never been one. Without aim or object, he has never ceased to undertake unjust wars like an adventurer seeking fame. Perhaps he is still dreaming of his gigantic designs, even while unequal reverses are inflicting such striking punishment upon the pride and abuse of victory. He has not known how to reign, either in the national interest or even in the interest of his own despotism. He has destroyed all that he wished to create, and recreated all that he wished to destroy. He believed in force alone. Today force overwhelms him, a just retribution for an insensate ambition. Incontestable truths and well-earned curses. But who was it that uttered those curses? What became of my poor little pamphlet, squeezed in between those virulent addresses? Did it not disappear entirely? On the same day, the 4th of April, the provisional government proscribed the signs and emblems of the imperial government. If the Arc de Triomphe had existed, it would have been pulled down. My, who was the first to vote for the death of Louis XVI, Cambacérès, who was the first to greet Napoleon by the title of emperor, eagerly recognised the acts of the provisional government. On the 6th, the Senate drafted a constitution. It rested nearly on the basis of the future charter. The Senate was preserved as an upper chamber. The senatorial dignity was declared permanent and hereditary. To the title to their property was attached the endowment of the senatorships. The constitution made those titles and properties transmissible to the descendants of the holder. Fortunately, those ignoble hereditary rights bore the fates within themselves, as the ancients used to say. The sordid effrontery of those senators, who, in the midst of the invasion of their country, did not for a moment lose sight of themselves, strikes one, even in the immensity of public events. Would it not have been more convenient for the Bourbons, on attaining power, to adopt the established government, a dumb legislative body, a secret and servile senate, a fettered press? On reflection, one finds the thing to be impossible. The natural liberties, writing themselves in the absence of the arm that bent them, would have resumed their vertical line under the weakness of the compression. If the legitimate princes had disbanded Bonaparte's army, as they ought to have done, this was Napoleon's opinion in the island of Elba, and if at the same time they had retained the imperial government, to break the instrument of glory in order to keep only the instrument of tyranny would have been too much. The charter was the ransom of Louis the Eighteenth. 
On the 12th of April, the Comte d'Artois arrived in the quality of Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom. Three or four hundred men went on horseback to meet him. I was one of the band. He charmed one with his kindly grace, different from the manners of the Empire. The French recognised with pleasure in his person their old manners, their old politeness and their old language. The crowd pressed round him, a consoling apparition of the past, a twofold protection as he was against the conquering foreigner and against the still-threatening Bonaparte. Alas, the prince was setting his foot again on French soil only to see his son assassinated there and to go back to die in the land of exile whence he was returning. There are men round whose necks life has been flung like a chain. I had been presented to the king's brother. He had been given my pamphlet to read, otherwise he would not have known my name. He remembered to have seen me neither at the court of Louis XVI nor at the camp of Thionville, and he had doubtless never heard speak of the Génie du Christianisme. That was very simple. When one has suffered much and long, he remembers only himself. Personal misfortune is a somewhat cold, yet exacting companion. It possesses you. It leaves no room for any other feeling, never quits you, seizes hold of your knees and your couch. The day before the entry of the Comte d'Artois, Napoleon, after some useless negotiations with Alexander, through the intermediary of M. de Colincourt, had published his act of abdication. The Allied powers having proclaimed that the Emperor Napoleon was the sole obstacle to the restoration of peace in Europe, the Emperor Napoleon, true to his oath, declares that he renounces for himself and his heirs the throne of France and Italy, because there is no personal sacrifice, even that of his life, which he is not ready to make to the interests of the French. To these sensational words the Emperor did not delay by his return to give a no less sensational contradiction. He needed only the time to go to Elba. He remained at Fontainebleau till the 20th of April. The 20th of April having arrived, Napoleon went down the double flight of steps leading to the peristyle of the deserted palace of the monarchy of the Capets. A few grenadiers, the remnants of the soldiers who conquered Europe, drew up in line in the great courtyard, as though on their last field of battle. They were surrounded by those old trees, the mutilated companions of Francis I and Henry IV. Bonaparte addressed the last witnesses of his fights in these words. Generals, officers, non-commissioned officers and men of my old guard, I take my leave of you. For twenty years I have been satisfied with you. I have always found you on the road of glory. The Allied powers have armed all Europe against me. A part of the army has betrayed its duty, and France herself has desired other destinies. With you and the brave men who have remained faithful to me, I could have kept up civil war for three years, but France would have been unhappy, which was contrary to the end which I proposed to myself. Be faithful to the new king whom France has chosen. Do not abandon our dear country, too long unhappy. Love her always, love her well, that dear country. Do not pity my lot. I shall always be happy when I know you to be so. I could have died, nothing would have been easier to me, but I shall never cease to follow the path of honour. I have yet to write what we have done. I cannot embrace you all, but I will embrace your general. Come, general. He pressed General Petit in his arms. Bring me the eagle. He kissed it. Dear eagle, may these kisses resound in the heart of all brave men. Farewell, my lads. My good wishes will always accompany you. Keep me in remembrance. These words spoken, Napoleon raised his tent, which covered the world. Bonaparte had applied to the Allies for commissaries, so that he might be protected by them on his journey to the island which the sovereigns granted him as his absolute property, 
and as an instalment on the future. Count Shuvalov was appointed for Russia, General Roller for Austria, Colonel Campbell for England, and Count Walberg Truxess for Prussia. The latter wrote the itinerary of Napoleon from Fontainebleau to Elba. This pamphlet and the Abbe de Prats on the Polish embassy are the two reports by which Napoleon was most pained. No doubt he then regretted the time of his liberal censorship, when he had poor Palm, the German bookseller, shot for distributing at Nuremberg, Herr von Genz's work, Deutschland in seiner tiefsten Erniedrigung. Nuremberg, at the time of the publication of this work, was still a free city, and did not belong to France. Ought not Palm to have been able to foresee that conquest? Count Wolberg begins by relating several conversations that took place at Fontainebleau previous to the departure. He states that Bonaparte awarded the greatest praise to Lord Wellington, and inquired as to his character and habits. He excused himself for not having made peace at Prague, Dresden, and Frankfurt. He agreed that he had been wrong, but that, at that time, he had had other views. I was no usurper, he added, because I accepted the crown only in compliance with the unanimous wish of the whole nation, whereas Louis the Eighteenth has usurped it, being called to the throne only by a vile senate, more than ten of whose members voted for the death of Louis XVI. Count Wolberg pursues his narrative as follows. The emperor started with his four carriages, about twelve o'clock on the twenty-first, not till after he had held a long conversation with General Rollet, which he commenced with these words. Well, you heard my speech to the old guard yesterday. It pleased you, and you have seen the effect it produced. That is the way to speak and act with them, and if Louis Eighteenth does not follow this example, he will never make anything of the French soldier. From the spot where the French troops ceased, the cries of long live the emperor also had an end. Already in Moulin we saw the white cockades, and the inhabitants saluted us with, Long live the Allies! In Lyon, which we passed through at about eleven o'clock at night, a few people collected who received the emperor with, Long live Napoleon! As he had expressed a wish to be escorted by an English frigate to the island of Elba, Colonel Campbell left us at Lyon for the purpose of procuring one either from Toulon or Marseille. About midday on the 24th, on this side Valence, Napoleon met Marshal Augereau. Both alighted from their carriages. The Emperor saluted the Marshal, embraced him, and took off his hat to him. Augereau returned none of these civilities. The Emperor, as he asked him, Where are you off to? Are you going to the court? took the Marshal by the arm and led him forwards. Augereau replied his present journey extended only to Lyon. They walked together for a quarter of a league on the road towards Valence, and according to authentic information the Emperor reproached the Marshal for his proclamation. Among other things he observed, Your proclamation is very silly. Why those insults against myself? All you need have said was, the nation having pronounced its wish in favour of a new sovereign, the duty of the army is to conform to it. God save the King. Long live Louis Eighteenth. Ergero, who now likewise thou'd him, reproached him, on the other hand, with his insatiate love of conquest, to which he had sacrificed the happiness of France. At length, tired of the discourse, the emperor turned suddenly towards the marshal, embraced him, again took off his hat to him, and got into the carriage. Ergero, who stood with his hands behind him, did not move his cap from his head, and as Napoleon was already in the carriage, drew one hand forwards in order to wave, with a mien bordering on contempt, a kind of farewell. On the 25th, as we arrived at Orange, we were received with, Long live the King! Long live Louis Eighteenth. On the same morning, close to Avignon, where the relays of horses awaited us, the Emperor found a crowd assembled, whose tumultuous cries saluted him with, 
Long live the king, long live the allies, down with Nicolas, down with the tyrant, the scoundrel, the wretched beggar, and still coarser abuse. In compliance with our instructions, we did everything in our power to lighten the evil, but could only partially effect it. The people likewise conceived that we should not deny them the liberty of venting their indignation against the man who had made them so unhappy, and even had the intention of rendering them still more miserable. In Orgon, the next place where we changed horses, the conduct of the populace was most outrageous. Exactly on the spot where the horses were taken out, a gallows was erected, on which a figure in French uniform sprinkled with blood was suspended. On its breast it bore a paper with this inscription, Sooner or later this will be the tyrant's fate. The rabble pressed around his carriage, and elevated themselves on both sides, in order to look and cast in their abuse. The emperor pressed into a corner behind General Bertrand, and looked pale and disfigured. But at length, through our assistance, he was happily brought off. Count Shuvalov harangued the people from the side of Bonaparte's carriage. "'Are you not ashamed,' said he, "'to insult an unfortunate who has not the means of defending himself? His situation is sufficiently humiliating for one who, expecting to give laws to the world, now finds himself at the mercy of your generosity. Leave him to himself. Behold him. You see contempt is the only weapon you ought to employ against this man, who is no longer dangerous. It would be unworthy of the French nation to take any other vengeance.' The crowd applauded this harangue and Bonaparte, seeing the effect it produced, made signs of approbation to Count Shuvalov, and afterwards thanked him for the service he had rendered him. When he had proceeded about a quarter of a league from Orgon, he changed his dress in his carriage, put on a plain blue greatcoat, and a round hat with a white cockade, mounted a post-horse, and rode on before as a courier. As it was some time ere we overtook him, we were perfectly ignorant of his being no longer in the carriage, and in St. Cana, where the horses were again changed. We still believed him to be in the greatest danger, for the people attempted to break open the doors, which, however, were fortunately locked. Had they succeeded, they would certainly have destroyed General Bertrand, who sat there alone. Characteristic is the prayer with which some of the women assailed me. For the love of God, deliver him up as a pillage to us. He has so well deserved it, both from you and us, that nothing can be more just than our request. Having overtaken the Empress' carriage about half a league on the other side of Orgon, it shortly afterwards entered into a miserable public-house, lying on the roadside, called the Calade. We followed it, and here first learnt Bonaparte's disguise, who in this attire had arrived here, accompanied by one courier only. His suite, from the generals to the scullions, were decorated with white cockades, which he appeared previously to have provided himself with. His valet de chambre, who came to meet us, begged we would conduct ourselves towards the emperor, as if he were Colonel Campbell, for whom, on his arrival, he had given himself out. We entered and found in a kind of chamber this former ruler of the world, buried in thought, sitting with his head supported by his hand. I did not immediately recognise him and walked towards him. He started up as he heard somebody approaching, and pointed to his countenance bedewed with tears. He made a sign that I might not discover him, requested me to sit down beside him, and as long as the landlady was in the room, conversed on indifferent subjects. As soon, however, as she was gone out, he resumed his former position. We left him alone. He sent Harver to request we would pass backwards and forwards, to prevent any suspicion of his being there. We informed him it was known Colonel Campbell had passed through here the day before, on his way to Toulon, on which he determined upon assuming the name of Lord Burgesh. Here we dined, but as the dinner had not been prepared by his own cooks, he had not courage to partake of it, for fear of being poisoned. He felt ashamed, however, at seeing us all eat, 
both with good appetites and good conscience, and therefore helped himself from every dish, but without swallowing the least morsel. He spat everything out upon his plate, or behind his chair, a little bread and a bottle of wine taken from his carriage, and which he divided with us, constituted his whole repast. In other respects he was conversable and extremely friendly towards us. Whenever the landlady, who waited upon us at table, left the room, and he perceived we were alone, he repeated to us his apprehensions for his life, and assured us the French government had indisputably determined to destroy or arrest him here. A thousand plans passed through his brain how he might escape, and what arrangements ought to be made to deceive the people of Aix, whom he had learnt awaited him by thousands at the post-house. The most eligible plan, in his estimation, would be to go back again to Lyon, and from thence strike into another road by way of Italy to the island of Elba. This, however, we should on no account have allowed, and we therefore endeavoured to persuade him to proceed either directly to Toulon, or by way of Dien to Fréjus. We assured him that, without our knowledge, it was impossible the French government would entertain such insidious intentions against him, and although the people allowed themselves the greatest improprieties, they would never charge themselves with a crime of the nature he feared. In order to inform us better, and to convince us the inhabitants of that part of the country meditated his destruction, he related to us what had happened to him as he arrived here alone. The landlady, who did not recognise him, asked him, Well, have you met Bonaparte? He replied in the negative. I am curious, she answered, to see how he will save himself. I do believe the people will murder him, and it must be confessed he has well deserved it, the scoundrel. Tell me, are they going to put him on board ship for his island? Yes, of course. They will drown him, I hope? Oh, no doubt, returned the emperor. And so you see, he added, turning towards us, the danger I am exposed to. And now again, with all his apprehensions and indecision, he renewed his solicitations of counsel. He even begged us to look around and see if we could not anywhere discover a private door through which he might slip out, or if the window, whose shutters upon entering he had half closed at the bottom, was too high for him to jump out in case of need. On examination I found the window was provided with an iron trellis-work on the outside, and threw him into evident consternation as I communicated to him the discovery. At the least noise he started up in terror and changed colour. After dinner we left him alone, and as we went in and out, found him frequently weeping. As General Shuvalov's adjutant had announced that the major part of the populace assembled on the road were dispersed, the emperor towards midnight determined on proceeding. For greater precaution, however, another disguise was assumed. General Shuvalov's adjutant was obliged to put on the blue greatcoat and round hat in which the emperor had reached the inn, that in case of necessity he might be regarded, insulted, or even murdered for him. Napoleon, who now pretended to be an Austrian colonel, dressed himself in the uniform of General Rollet, with the order of Theresa, wore my camp cap, and cast over his shoulders General Shuvalov's mantle. After the Allies had thus equipped him, the carriages drove up and we were obliged to march them through the other rooms of the inn in a certain order, which had been previously tried in our own chamber. The procession was headed by General Drouot, then came, as emperor, General Shuvalov's adjutant, upon this General Rollet, the emperor, General Shuvalov, and lastly myself, to whom the honour of forming the rear-guard was assigned. The remainder of the imperial suite united themselves with us as we passed by, and thus we walked through the gaping multitude who vainly endeavoured to distinguish their tyrant amongst us. Shuvalov's adjutant, Major Olivif, placed himself in Napoleon's carriage, 
and the latter sat beside General Rollet in his calash. Still, however, the Emperor was constantly in alarm. He not only remained in General Rollet's calash, but even begged he would allow the servant to smoke who sat before, and asked the General himself if he could sing, in order that he might dissipate, through such familiar conduct, any suspicion in the places where we stopped, that the Emperor sat with him in the carriage. As the General could not sing, Napoleon begged him to whistle, and with this singular music we made our entry into every place, whilst the Emperor, fumigated with the incense of the tobacco-pipe, pressed himself into the corner of the calash, and pretended to be fast asleep. At St. Maximin he breakfasted with us, and having learnt that the sub-prefect of Aix was there, he ordered him into his presence, and received him with these words, You ought to blush to see me in an Austrian uniform, which I have been obliged to assume to protect myself against the insults of the Provençals. I came among you in full confidence, whilst I might have brought with me six thousand of my guard, and I find nothing but a band of maniacs who put my life in danger. The Provençals are a disgraceful race. They committed every kind of crime and enormity during the revolution, and are quite ready to begin over again. But when it is a question of fighting bravely, then they are cowards. Provence has never supplied me with a single regiment with which I could be satisfied, but to-morrow they will be as much against Louis the Eighteenth as to-day they appear to be against me, etc. To us he again spoke of Louis the Eighteenth, and said he would never effect anything with the French nation if he treated them with too much forbearance. He would, from necessity, be obliged to lay large imposts upon them, and hence cause himself to be immediately hated. He likewise told us that, eighteen years before, he had marched through this place with some thousand men to liberate two royalists, who were to have been executed for wearing the white cockade, in spite, however, of the fury of the populace with which he had to contend, he fortunately saved them, and to-day, he continued, would that man be murdered by this same populace, who should refuse to wear a white cockade, so contradictory and vacillating are they in everything they do. Having learnt that two squadrons of Austrian hussars were stationed at Luc, an order was sent at his request to the commanders to await our arrival there, in order to escort the Emperor to Frejus. End of Book 3, Part 1